Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ian Rice, and with me, legitimately with me this time, Mr. David Hudson. David, how are you, sir? This is weird. It is. It's very odd. This is a very momentous occasion, folks. This is the first time we've podcasted in the same room since we started this. and First time we've met. Yeah. See, it's, it's, it's such a gray area for me, though. Because, you know, we're great friends. It's just, uh, you know, this pandemic uh, messed inter- things up, interfered with what we were doing. I know it was so funny yesterday when we were going to pick you up at the train station. I was like, I don't know how tall he is. Yeah, I know. We I are like, of similar height. I know. I was like, who's And I, was, I saw like you had the mask on. You were coming out of the, the train station. I was telling Sean, I was like, I don't really know how, how tall this this could be in. Could not be in. <laughs> Well, I was coming from the you know the northeast where I, it's, uh, things are still a little more strict than apparently the down here, so which is fine. What pandemic? I know. Well, you know we are us too are fully vaccinated, so you know there's that. But this is a uh, a doubly uh, momentous thing because not only is this the first time we're meeting up and podcasting in the same spot, but we are in Atlanta, Georgia, which is really the. Uh, birthplace of the black crows so it couldn't be a more fitting location really no nah, really it couldn't just down the road a little bit that's right i i, I remember going through because i was on that marta system and going through places like you know little five points and buckhead and i'm thinking like these are all like crows names i remember you know from steve gorman stories and things so that was kind of cool yeah yeah i guess they grew up in marietta which is one of the northwest suburbs it's probably about 20 or so miles from where we are well, we were going to do like a little uh, Black Crows themed tour, like Home of the Stars kind of type tour based off some things that Steve Gorman shared with us. But a little gas pipeline crisis has kind of put a dent in that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I got to find some gas to get home. I know. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to be pushing. You're going to be Fred Flintstone in that thing back. Yeah. Sleeping on the side of the interstate. <laughs> but we had a good time last night. We are here in between nights one and two of the Americans uh, Black Crows tribute band that we are, of course, very friendly with. They were doing two performances here at uh, a little place called Rosati's. Very, very interesting first evening, wouldn't you say? Blew me away. The attention, I was telling them last night, the attention to detail is just unreal. Um, from the female backup singers to um, just Kevin's playing. I mean, there was not a weak link up there. No, and they do it right. They go for the sound and the tone rather than the look and the copying all the moves and things like that, like a lot of tribute acts are. You mean like the uh, Leonard Skinner band that opened for them? Yeah, those guys were a little bit more. They were really good. They were great. They were just a little bit more in capturing the, you know, the visual with the music. And, you know, the visual to me doesn't matter. If you get the music right, that's what counts. Not, and I'm not knocking those guys at all. Those guys were fantastic. And they were really nice guys. They hung around after. Yeah, They're very yeah. complimentary to our buddies and. You could tell that they were into Skinner's music. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they've had great attention to detail. You know, they played everything note for note. 
Yeah. Down to having three guitar players. Yeah. I guess that's the uh, the drawback of putting together a Skinner tribute band. you got to find three guitar players. Was Skinner always three guitar players? I think so. I'm, yeah. I'm not a Leonard Skinner historian by any stretch of the imagination, but, but I think they were kind of the original three guitar band. They were. Are there any other three guitar? Um, like Drive By Truckers? I guess there's some if you count the lead singer, you know, playing some rhythm. Well, I mean, Mick Jagger plays rhythm sometimes. I wouldn't consider him a guitarist in the band. I wouldn't either. A lot of people, much like with Chris Robinson, a lot of people get incensed when Mick Jagger grabs a guitar. I don't see the big deal. Well, he looks so awkward playing it. That's true. He's probably very low in the mix, though. <laughs> you know? He might be turned down. I don't I, I don't even remember what songs I've seen him play on. I think maybe Undercover of the Night is one that comes to mind. Doesn't he play on Miss You? Does he? I, I could be wrong. I mean, If I can go off on a tangent for a second. Mm-hmm. Miss You and uh, Emotional Rescue. What were they doing? Was disco that big at the time? Yeah. I mean, look, Kiss put out a disco song. That's true. I mean, like, Miss You is still kind of rock, but, like, Emotional Rescue is a disco tune. I don't know how Keith let that one get by. Yeah, I don't like the, all the falsetto stuff either. I don't like it when people when people do that. I don't know. Was that, like, a thing? You know, I know the Bee Gees were very falsetto. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind it a little bit but like Jim James and my morning jacket relies on it way too heavy does he really I'm not I'm so unfamiliar with my morning jacket yeah yeah. I know it just broke your heart the more albums they put out well I mean the last three or four I haven't really cared for really it's three albums they put out that like it's my sweet spot was it like the first three or something no it's uh, At Dawn It Still Moves Z and Part of Evil Urges but after that it's gotten kind of downhill in my opinion that's one thing I always appreciated about you you're not like, oh, the first album was the best kind of guy. Like, you don't like Pearl Jam 10. I think it's one of the most overrated albums of all time. Yeah. Versus is great. Yield is great. The Avocado album's great. The one that just came out is really good. Well, we were talking to uh, Seth from the Americans last night, and he was very adamant that uh, he lost all interest in Pearl Jam after uh, Dave Abuzazi left. He brought a, a, a extra special something to the band, like I was saying last night, that MTV Music Awards or whatever, where they played Animal and Keep On Rocking in the Free World, you can't take your eyes off of him. No, he was definitely probably the most talented drummer they had in terms of technical proficiency. But I think Jack Irons brought a lot to those records. I don't think Yield would be the same record without Jack Irons. Yeah, Yield's great. Yeah, that's probably my favorite Pearl Jam See, record. I really enjoy Mellow Pearl Jam. Yeah. And that, it, song's, that album's got plenty of mellow. It does, Faithful and all that. And... Given to Fly and in, was it in Hiding, Wishlist. There's a lot of great ones on there. That definitely is my favorite. Low Light. Like, I love Off He Goes off of um, No Code. Yes. There's a lot of underrated material on that album. That was one of the first albums I get. I don't know if this experience still exists, but, you know, at that time, this was in the, obviously in the 90s, it was a big deal to find a record store that would sell you a record before release day. Because, you know, they get them in stock before. Right. So I had one. And I remember getting no code early, and I think I got Fish's Billy Breathes early, and you know all kinds of stuff like that. I think it's a lost art, though. I do too. I've I've never even attempted to do that you know, anymore. No, it's a lot of things with albums are lost arts. Well, that's a whole other pod, state of market chats podcast. It is. It's a whole depressing road you can go down. But uh, but at any rate, so here today we decided. Because, you know, over the course, we try to decide when we're going to do our album breakdowns and things like that. And, you know, we've been reserving the, you know, quote-unquote, big three, Southern Harmony, Amorica, and Three Snakes. 
Three Snakes particularly because, for those who don't know, the first kind of podcast that David and I did together was almost like my trial run was on David's That's exactly other, what it was. Yeah, exactly. It's on David's other podcast, Digital Killed the Radio Star. We did Three Snakes in One Charm, so we were kind of avoiding doing it because we had done it. But we now have come to the realization that being that this is the first time we're in the same room and we're in Atlanta and uh, it might be a good idea to revisit that just the two of us go back over it and do the official three snakes under review if only we could have gone to the house where they recorded it chateau de la croix i believe which yeah steve gorman sent me the uh the how to get there but he said you can't see it from the road is it still a uh like a house or is it i guess so yeah yeah it's in um like northwest atlanta if only we were smarter at planning yeah, probably could have rented the house out and done it there, and sat in the bathroom like Rich did. Apparently, yeah. You ever see, like I think it was like a brief shot on the behind the music. You can see Rich like recording something like in the bathroom. <laughs> that would have been funny. This is the uh, toilet where Richard Robinson uh, laid down some uh, tasty licks. <laughs> it's funny on that too. It shows them recording that and like standing outside in the snow. I didn't think this, was, and it looked like a pretty sizable snow. I didn't think this was a big snow area. Every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been cool if we could have been like, hey, can we come in this hot random house and record a podcast? Yeah. That would have been uh, awesome. But uh, we're just flying by the seat of our pants. We didn't yeah. think of these things, you know. So anyway, what do you say? We'll jump into this thing and we'll yeah chat about a record that's my personal favorite. I don't know. Where does it stand for you? I don't quite remember. Number, number two. Because mm-hmm. we did this once and I mm-hmm. forgot. Yeah, number two. Yeah, but the, all, those lists are always subject to change, too. So you know. Yeah, and I'm sure like some of the stuff I'm going to say about songs has changed from the first time we did this a couple of years ago. It'd be interesting to go back and compare, actually. Yeah, Three Snakes is always my favorite record. It's when I went full bore into the Black Crows. I, I bought that record in a you know, mom-and-pop shop by me, and uh, that was the one that really grabbed me. I mean, I always loved Southern Harmony, and I had a Morica when it came out, but like... Something about Three Snakes really just pulled me in. And I know, uh, uh, you know, which I didn't realize till we started doing this podcast, that a fair number of people don't connect with it as much as I thought. I thought it was this universally popular record because the, the tour, the 96-97 tour, is so universally loved. I just thought it was because that record was so universally loved. But it's not the case. I think it depends on where you came in with the band. Yeah. Um, you know, you had... They picked up some people with By Your Side. I know people don't like to hear that, but you had to shake your moneymaker people, and then they kind of got off the bus for a while, and By Your Side brought them back. And then, I mean, it's not a conventional-sounding Black Crows album. It's very, for them, fairly experimental. Yeah, I mean, you're right about you know certain people coming into the band with, with By Your Side. I think our friend Jason Johannes is that way mm-hmm. from the All Things Blues and Southern Rock podcast good friend of ours but he's said that which you know has incensed some other individuals perhaps or <laughs> but it's also a very 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 dark album it is it's i remember reading a thing that came out around the time of by your side a quote from chris robinson talking about you know he said like three snakes was what it was like you know the 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 day after the party and by your side was the party but he's right it does have that kind of like hungover kind of vibe to it or something like that three snakes it's very bleak in a lot of ways it's a drug album it definitely is a drug album and that to me especially after reading steve's book 
it really sums up where I think the band was at, you know, physically, mentally at that time. Well, they were at a huge crossroads. You know, were they going to be a just a rock band or they're going to be kind of this hybrid between, you know, the Grateful Dead and the Almond Brothers with a little bit of Rolling Stones thrown in? And I think that's one of the points Steve tried to make in the book. Like, we could have done all of that and been successful and you just catered all three groups, you know? And so they were at a crossroads and then you have these songs that for them were a little unconventional. You know, it's very few just like, I guess with like Nebuchadnezzar and Blackberry are like straight up rock songs, but the other stuff was very intricate and you had all these different layers to it. And it's such a well written and well recorded album. And it's, it's one of the albums that I tell people, like if you really want to hear the difference between vinyl and a CD, if you put that remastered version of Three Snakes on, it sounds so good. And you just realize, like, there's so much depth to that recording and so many layers to things. And I think that's one of the reasons By Your Side upset people so much, is it came after this masterpiece. And it they did a complete left turn. Yeah, it is, it is very disjointed, you know. I just... It's a record of substance, and to me, that means a lot more. Like, I can I can deal with missteps, like maybe songs that aren't fully realized or don't, you know, miss the mark in some way, if it's part of this overall picture. And I think that's what it is with Three Snakes, because a lot of people cite certain songs, you know, maybe they don't think they're as good or, or as strong, but I, to me, that is a, it's an album. And especially, like, these days, it's hard to explain to maybe younger music fans, like, the, the, the importance of an album because things have become so single oriented or you know you, you're cherry picking tracks on Spotify or whatever digital platforms you might use and and an overall album is really important to me well it was kind of I mean very very loosely almost like a concept album in a way because yeah. there's, there's a definite theme it's why I, I mean Just Say You're Sorry is a great song but it would not have fit on that album had they decided to put it on there no and that's that's the the cool thing about an album is like you have to make choices. Like you may have this brilliant song, but it doesn't fit in the context of all the other songs you have for that album. So you got to cut yeah, it like out. you couldn't put licking in after a girl from a pawn shop. No, you know it, it doesn't. You shouldn't put licking anywhere. Listen, that sounds dirty. First of all, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I you know I much with a lot of tracks on lions. If I could digress, that musically I like them. It's lyrically that they fall down. Licking musically, what Rich is doing is really cool. Oh yeah, just change the lyrics. Yeah, don't make it a poison song. Yeah. But so talking specific songs, I guess we should jump right back into this and start with Three Snakes, one of the best album openers, I think. Under a mountain. <laughs>
Now, I don't know how you feel about this track, but I love this track. I always have. I think it's it's a great opener. From the second that you hear Eddie Harsh hit that like downstroke on the keys and it launches right into it, it's it's great. I love the song. It's like it it sounds so desperate in all the best ways, like just the the music, the vibe, the lyrics. But I don't ever find it depressing, even though it, it very well could and should be it's not that's how it's a testament to their music really it is and as i have learned i have consulted a few musicians musicians and they have told me that that opening part that ed harsh plays is not easy to play something as simple as that right you always think oh it's just a quick thing but sometimes those things are the real mark of skill i love that i love little things that add to songs so much you know well i think this uh, this song really sets the tone for the album and that this this isn't gonna be you know (laughs) There's no she gave good sunflower on here or anything like that. This is lyrically going to be their. This is the darkest album lyrically that they've done solo or with the band or otherwise by far. It's very desperate. There's a lot of despair in them, and and you know it's very dark themes. You know musically it's a little more somber, uh, not in every single song, but you know overall. And this is the first time though I really that. Rich really blended his acoustic and electric guitar playing together in the songs, which is you can first hear it on Under a Mountain. And it, Rich is such an underrated acoustic player, it's unbelievable. And that really comes out with how this is produced and, and mastered. It's the there's so many layers to the album, and, oh, yeah. and this song is, is a great example of this. You know, I didn't realize because I've never seen the Crows play this one live, you know, it doesn't get to played as much as you would think it does, should, but. When I saw Magpie and they played this, it really hit me, like especially live, there's a serious groove to this. Let me ask you your your thoughts. What does Lay Down with Number 13 mean? I always took it to mean you're knowingly in bed or, you know, partnered up with something bad, bad luck, yeah. something not good, bad luck, you know, something of that nature. I could be totally wrong. It's never really been clarified. That's always what I took it to mean. Yeah, and the song's very direct is what's going on. Chris Robinson does a good job sometimes, I think, of writing kind of ambiguous lyrics. And a lot of times I'm a fan of ambiguous lyrics because you can kind of interpret it to be, you know, what you want. This album, for the most part, is pretty straightforward as far as the lyrical content on it. This, you know, I think we did on our album openers episode. This is this is one of my favorite openers. And they do a, to me, a better job than almost any band of setting the tone on every album with the opening song. And also for a lot of people, including me, this was not one on first listen I was completely wowed with. The the track or the album? The album. And to me, a lot of the albums that go on to be some of my favorite albums did not grab me first. Now, I'm going to point out to Steve Gleason, I've appreciated Three Snakes and One Charm from the get-go. <laughs> yes, don't talk out of school. He'll, he'll come get you, man. Yeah, but uh, getting back to the song, everybody adds a lot to it. I think it's some of Chris's best vocals. You know, he always does a good job of of conveying emotion, but on this album, particularly this song, he does a great job of it. Yeah, and, and starting here, but just, you know, throughout the record, lyrically, even though they are, as you said, more direct, it's still, Chris Robinson's lyrics always leave a big window for imagery. So as you're listening, you're picturing certain things in your head or you're getting these images. And not everybody's lyrics can do that. And that's why Chris Robinson's a really unique lyricist in that way. Very underappreciated by people outside of 
knuckleheads like us. How dare you call me a knucklehead? I don't uh... <laughs> <laughs> speak for yourself. But uh, so, the, and then the second track on the album, definite fan favorite over the years, and that's Good Friday. <laughs> one of my favorite black crow songs and the opening to it with the harmonica really kind of sets the tone for the song and i love it with some of the different uh, lineups of the band they'll start off and do a couple bars without the harmonica and then chris comes right in i know we have people that know how to play the harmonica tell me he's not a good harmonica player and technically i I don't know. I mean, I don't. I wouldn't know what makes a good harmonica player or not good harmonica player. All I know is what how it makes me feel, and ultimately, that's what matters. And to me, his harmonica playing adds a whole lot to this song. Someone said something to me years ago, and it always stuck with me. Uh, if it sounds good, it is good. So, it it really sounds great to me. It to me, it may not be the most complex or technically proficient harmonica playing. I like you. I really don't. Uh, I'm not as uh, adept at, at determining that with that particular instrument but i know that when they play it live like you said first there's that that opening sequence which is actually in a live setting a little bit more ambient in a way there's like kind of like a thread through it that kind of is open and airy which is kind of cool but when when chris hits that harmonica whoo that's emotion for that simple harmonica run that packs a lot of punch and i've always loved the double shot of that live i've always thought that not take away the vocals but just sonically this almost could be a Pink Floyd song with how spacey and kind of floaty it is, if that floaty's even a word, you know, like on Us and Them. Something exactly. Like that, something like that. I've always really enjoyed the lyrics to this song. They're somewhat biting at times, you know, to the, the person he's talking to. Really just, this is top shelf Black Crows. This is Black Crows on top of their game. Yeah, and just if you've ever been lucky enough to be at a Black Crow show on Good Friday and this comes... Oh, over the moon. It's, a, you know, it's one of those inside fan things, you know, and it's, it makes you feel good to be a Black Crows fan when that hap- something like that happens. Let me ask you this. Why do you think sometimes they don't do the extended intro? Are there more recent instances where they don't? I, I wasn't aware that they sometimes don't do it with the intro. I've, I've heard the it. extended with, intro. I've heard it without it. I don't think when they did it with um, Luther, they did it a ton like that. I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, I know somebody will let me know on the A3 board, but... 
maybe I'm maybe I'm completely off on that. If I am, I apologize. I've never been able to figure out why they do that with a lot of their songs. Though, like if you you know recall, like Soul Singing at one point had a big jam in it, and they just stopped doing the jam. And you know, certain things like uh, sometimes they play Gone without the percussive intro to it, and sometimes they you know it's, it's just. Some- Kind of, I guess, like on my morning song there for a while, they didn't do the jam, went into Stare It Cold and came back. That, I mean, no, no Speak, No Slave has two different variations live. So, I mean, they kind of, maybe they just do it to change it up amongst themselves, you know? Maybe Keep so. It interesting. But that brings us to another great track, in my opinion Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> I think this song is just another example of how just strong a, a riff writer Rich is. Like he, it's really such a great riff on this. I love the feedback intro, and then you hear Steve counting off. You know, it almost has a very live in the studio feel to it, and then it's just such a great overall kind of jam. I love the uh, the falsetto kind of backing vocals on it during the chorus, and then. At the end, when you think it's over, and then they just hit that massive note with a big bottom end and, and jump back into it for a few minutes. I think that's great. I'll admit, this is a song that I didn't really like all that much and appreciate. And when we had Nebuchadnezzar himself, Nebuchadnezzar on Twitter, you know, really talked about how much he loved this song. I went back to it with some more open ears, and it has grown on me. I do love the guitar tone on it. It does have some serious swagger to it. And this is probably the most conventional rock and roll song on the album, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. You know, now that you mention it, yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, the most, and I hate to use this term, but I don't know a different term to use, the most standard tune on the album. But it doesn't lack the same conviction and, you know, just sheer weight that the rest of the songs do. Like, it's not like a misstep or right. anything like that. Right. But it is, it is a little more traditional black crows you know what i mean yeah it, this could have fit in on like amorica if they wanted to speaking of amorica so amorica and three snakes have the same producer jack joseph week and it, it's amazing to me the stark difference between the two records in terms of sound mm-hmm. i agree which which would indicate to me that that jack is a guy that listens to what the artist wants and factors that into his production approach when recording which i think is cool yeah, he did a great job with both albums. I think the way he picked up the little ear candy or put the ear candy in there on Amorica was what set that album apart. And on Three Snakes, just the way he layers everything. There's so many layers to everything. It's just beautiful. Yeah, it's actually very interesting. You and I had received these a while ago, but I think they're out there generally now. Some uh, rough mixes of Three Snakes tunes, you know, some rehearsals and or just things that hadn't been fully mixed properly. And some of those versions, you can hear some of the other layers that kind of got 
built upon and faded into the mix a little bit more on the final product, and that's kind of cool. Uh, people should definitely seek those out if they haven't heard them. It gives you a whole new perspective on a record that you might have heard, you know, hundreds of times at this point. You know, maybe we could send those to a few people if they want them. Well, I'm not opposed to doing that, but you know, I don't like to be forward. Yeah. Right. I'm not going to send things if you don't want them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so that brings us to another particular favorite track of mine, and that's "One Mirror Too Many." From the Now, I'll, I'll admit, initially, when I first bought this record, this wasn't one of the ones that grabbed me right out of the gate. I remember reading uh, a review at the time, you know, just because I, at the time, I read everything that I could possibly read about the Black Crows that I could find. And one reviewer described it as, it's like being dropped into the middle of a jam, the way it starts. And it's it's very true. Like, that buildup at the beginning almost sounds like they've been going for a few minutes and they hit record, you know, after, you know, in the middle almost, you know. But I really, I like the way Chris's melody line mirrors Rich's guitar, and you know the uh, the chorus lyrics itself just really uh, resonate with me. I, I like I like the whole thing. I, I've come to really really appreciate this song. I don't. Know, what do you think about it? If they didn't call it "One Mirror Too Many," they could just call it the Cocaine Song. <laughs> I think there's another song that we're gonna get to later. I think are two of the more underappreciated gems, both being played live and just when people were talking about great Black Crow songs. And speaking of which, last night when we saw the Amorkins, Sherry Richardson nailed this song. They let her take the lead on it. That's true. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you. It's like being brought into a jam, but I love like the tempo changes on this one. You know, it kind of starts off kind of frantic, and then the chorus is, you know, a different tempo, and you have the great backing vocals that come in on this. They really add a lot particularly really like the solo this song just has a lot of different moods and moving parts in it that i that i really appreciate and it's one of the songs that i did really like right off the bat off three snakes i just think it's underplayed and you don't hear a lot of people talking about it i believe one of the san francisco fillmore shows they start off with this if i remember correctly which i think is a great a great actually a great idea lyrically this fits in with the rest of the album obviously it's uh you know about the effect of drugs, to, you know, and their effect on you mentally, physically, and just really, it just really fits in on the album. And I think it's one of the more unique sounding songs they've ever recorded. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. And you brought up the the backing vocals. You're right; those are very striking. And one of the few times on a record you can distinctly hear Mark Ford singing on the backup mm-hmm. vocals, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. How much do you think he contributed to backing vocals in the studio? I think he contributes 
much more than people realize, but I think he's he's mixed in more. Like uh, mo- more often than not, you can mo- usually pinpoint Rich in the background vocals, and then everybody else is kind of like an, an amalgamation of everybody's voice. You know what I mean? Next time we have Marco, we need to ask him that. We should. So next up on the album is a song that was released as a single, but has been much maligned over the years, and that is Blackberry. Now, I don't know about you, David. My take on Blackberry is I like Blackberry very much musically and lyrically it kind of falls off for me. Whereas I said Good Friday was top shelf Black Crows, this is bottom shelf Black Crows. I, I I agree with you. You put different lyrics on there and it's a completely different song. The playing on it's great. I just have never identified with the lyrics and to me they come across kind of silly on an album that's really intense. Yeah, it's this one. This is if you had to pick a song that maybe was a little disjointed with the overall album, this would be it. But I'm a little bit more willing to accept when Chris does goes into a little bit more soul territory and like those early like soul Motown t- kind of tunes. From from my knowledge, anyway, have kind of lyrics like this, like a little more abstract and kind of just I don't want to say silly, but you know, like fun. You know what I mean? Like nothing too serious. I think that's what he's trying to accomplish with, with stuff like like this and um, like Only a Fool on By Your Side and things like that. Like he, he dips his toe in that water a bit. And so I, I can appreciate it a little bit. But just the overall lyrical theme on this album, this doesn't fit in with it. I think you put this on another album and it wouldn't be as maligned as it is. This might actually have worked better on By Your Side, dare I say. Yeah, I agree. Or even Lions. Yeah, actually it, it, it would have guitar-wise, would have fit in there pretty nicely. But then it quickly, that thought is quickly erased when we get to probably one of the most epic tunes in the Black Crows catalog. Definitely a fan favorite, especially live, and that is Girl from a Pawn Shop.
the most emotionally charged song in the catalog. As far as huh. kicking me in the feels, hair standing up on my arm every time, it is a perfect song. It starts off very slow, almost like a country song, and then it kicks into the 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 chorus, and then Mark Ford comes in each time. You cannot say enough about the solo on this. This is a Mark... We talk about, like, sometimes Salvation being a Mark Ford song, or, like, I kind of always considered Sting Me a rich song. You know, you have Descending and, and Thorn in My Pride or, or Ed songs. This is a Mark Ford song, and if this isn't number one or number two in your favorite Mark Ford solos, then we probably need to have dinner and have a talk or something because, <laughs> I mean, this is such an original solo there's so much feel put into it, and let's don't discount when they come out of the solo, has that cool kind of sonic thing going on, which is great. And I know people like to always talk about, you know, Mark's playing and Mark's soloing. Mark's playing and soloing doesn't sound like it does without Rich providing the the tapestry for him to paint over. Even Mark said that, you know, he's like, when Rich and I play, there's just something about us playing. And I don't think Rich gets enough credit for his riffs, I don't think he gets enough credit for his tunings, his rhythm ability. It's not the same, you know, if you don't have Rich there. And I think this is a, a, a song where he contributes just as much to it as it's not as flashy as the stuff Mark does, but he contributes a lot to this. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with every statement you made there. I mean, and yes, it's good that you bring that up. Rich certainly doesn't get appreciation for his his riffs and his use of alternate tunings. I mean, you know, there's always the comparison made to the Stones in terms of the open G, but Rich uses so many open tunings and has experimented with so many different styles of open tuning. Uh, he's like a master of it, and he does not get the credit for that that he should. Well, I'm I'm not going to name any names, but we all know there's some some guitar players that are some of the best current guitar players realize it's not as easy to play as you think it is no definitely not and you're absolutely right about mark's playing on this to me i I always thought this but especially after reading steve's book when it covered like this kind of time period to me that's that's what mark is feeling inside coming out in his playing and that really that's what makes it ultimately well it's the same thing with sometimes salvation like he told us he just had hit a wall and like i've got i've got to get this right and that is definitely what I we even talked to Mark about this. And he was saying, he basically was like, yeah, that's all emotion. Yeah. I mean, he's crying out through his guitar and you know, it's, it's, it's such a great solo. And even just the, the little colorations he does throughout the song on the guitar, like the little lead interstitial kind of things uh, really, really nice. Well, I mean, I, I'll quote Charlie star. When we talked about him, Mark Ford, he doesn't play a lot of notes, but the ones he plays matter. And this is a great example of that. I mean, he can be a flashy player when he wants to be, but he doesn't have to be, and that's the key. To me, it's even flashier when he's not, because it's just kind of like, hey, boys, I could make this a whole lot more complicated, but I'm going to play it with emotion. Yeah, it's kind of the David Gilmore approach. Have you noticed, like, David Gilmore's best stuff? Like, he leaves a lot of space in his stuff, and it really, even though he could be soloing the hell out of it, he kind of knows what works best for the song, and Mark always knows what works best in the context of the song. Can you imagine them two doing a track t- together? That would be interesting. Have Gilmore, their have, styles are very different. Have Gilmore doing the pedal steel. That would be nice. And then Mark doing the slide at the same time. That actually would be cool because Mark actually does very well covering Pink Floyd tunes. So I mean, if they did something of David's, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, dogs. Can you imagine the breakdown on do- the guitar breakdown on dogs with those two? Oh, that would be fantastic. So we carry on past uh, the magic of 
girl from a pawn shop, and we hit on only halfway to everywhere. I personally love this song. I didn't even realize till years later that it really was not performed on the Three Snakes tour. It wasn't performed until 2005. And that live version that you can hear on Freakin' Roll, fantastic. And, you know, uh, Charity and Mona really uh, take those, you know, alternating vocal spots. They really make that work because that's a hard thing to pull off live with three different people taking a lead like that. When I think they both said this was their favorite song to play. Yeah, I can distinctly remember talking to Charity, and, and when we brought it up, she, the tune kind of came in her head, and she was like grooving and singing it. The and, smile on her face. Yeah, yeah, that was, that's one of the, I got to tell you, that's one of the best things I've ever seen on doing these interviews, it was that. It was just so, well, it was genuine. That was real. Yeah. yeah, it was very genuine. I don't think you can appreciate this song till you see it live. No, and it, I personally like live I mean, I know we're dealing with the album version here, but I do personally like live that jam breakdown that they do when when uh, Sven, Steve, and Ed are kind of laying down the framework and Rich and Mark are kind of laying on top of it, and then they keep coming in, repeating the chorus vocally. Like, that's just so great. I mean, this is Chris Robinson in his element. If oh, you yeah. If you would have told me this song was recorded at Stax in Memphis or in Fame in Muscle Shoals, Yeah. I'm never. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't blink. I would say, yeah, you're right. He is, you know, a 1970s soul singer on this one. That's why I keep saying, Chris, make a R&B soul slash reggae album, and it would it would do great. This is such a fun one to watch live because you can tell everybody in the band enjoys playing this. Everybody. Yeah, which is so surprising to me that it wasn't played for so long. I mean, I I really think it's the the horns and the the complicated lead vocals that really held it off from being performed live, in my opinion. But definitely great on the album, though. And the you know that's the Dirty Dozen brass band on there, um, and they're fantastic. Have you ever and seen them on their own? No, I've seen them. I've seen and heard them, you know, uh, contributing to other bands' material. They played at like our fraternity house in college. Is that right? Yeah, they're just amazing. That seems like a sizable band to have in a fraternity house. We had a big budget. Do you remember, do you no, remember? I just mean from space. Oh yeah, we had we had a massive stage. Really did. Oh yeah, yeah. They fit up there. But yeah, they're they're where, a great. Where did you go to uh, college, David Faber? Uh, <laughs> are you in Animal House? <laughs> we we the fraternity scene was pretty uh pretty massive. Uh, 
pretty, pretty good bands. But anyway, back to uh, only halfway to everywhere. Like I said, live it's a juggernaut. If you get, you know, they did not play it a ton. Do not play it a ton. That the freaking roll version to me is the definitive version of that song. Yes, that was the Left Coast Horns. The main guy actually from that uh, David Ellis, I remember on that contributed to. Was it nonfiction? He did a little horn solo on that. That's right. It was really cool. Yeah. But at any rate, one great song leads to another, although I think we differ in opinion on the next song, and that is Bring On, Bring On. How could I My opinion of this has changed since we did our first, when we did this on Digital Kill the Radio Star. Because of this podcast and because of like just hearing more people's opinions that aren't necessarily the, the people that are always critical of everything, just trolling people, and listening to people like Seth Miller, like Steve Gleason, you know, these guys that actually play the music and, and are good musicians, bring on, bring on and how much for your wings have climbed up the ladder for me. And I can appreciate this a lot more. This may be the best mixing job on the album. Yes. This, this is layered perfectly. It's completely different from a lot of other stuff they've done in their catalog. And it does a, it's a little more lyrically, a little more positive than the, the first side of the album. But, um, I, I have really grown to this. And actually when I, spin this album on vinyl now this is one of the songs i look forward to hearing i i've always thought this was great because I, at the time when i got into the album i was very big on acoustic guitars and so i was really captivated i mean this is a perfect example of what we were talking about before of his use of open tunings and things and i just think the jangling nature of it it really just comes across great it is recorded nicely it is mixed nicely and uh the vocals, the horns on this. I mean, there's so many elements of this that really, it really benefits from repeated listenings. So do you think with the acoustic guitars on this song, it's just rich and it's layered over one another? Do you think Mark's playing acoustic on this as well? I honestly think the bulk of it is, is, is rich and Mark's kind of there for coloration, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. But this tune, uh, in a live setting, I always need paired with the next track on the album, which is how much for your wing.
Now, How Much For Your Wings uh, is notable for being the first appearance of Rich on any kind of lead vocal On an situation. album, yeah. Yeah. And I think I think How Much For Your Wings is great because I, I there's a contrast in the song where like the main verse and and chorus and everything you know is, is really nice like acoustic number pretty straightforward nothing too crazy and then there's just this like dissonant part like you know how does it feel to be the only one is the lyric going over it and it's just it's just like this chaotic part in the middle of the song and then it goes straight back into that calm I mean that's really cool dynamics. I, I, that's why I've always liked the song so much. It, that whole interplay really reminds me of Via Chicago by Wilco. Yeah, exactly. How they have that chaotic part. It's completely chaotic, and then without missing a beat, it goes right back into the to the melody. Yeah, and live they're pretty good at pulling it off too. Like it doesn't, you know, it's not it's not like a one off thing that they were able to do on the record. Like they they can consistently do that. Well, in live sometimes this is the longest song they play. Yeah, they really. I'm not always a fan of like that deconstructionist type jam, which they do on this. I, I think sometimes they overdid it on this song. But Rich's vocals are very, I guess for lack of a better word, tender on this. His vocal ability has really, he's really worked hard on his vocals and, and, and he's really improved on from this one. Again, like when I first got the record, this was one of the songs that stood out to me. I really, you know, for the same qualities as Bring On, Bring On because of the acoustic guitars and stuff. But just, just fantastic, in my opinion. Which brings us to another track that um, gets a lot of attention in the live setting. And that is uh, Let Me Share the Ride. I like it. I think it's fun. Uh, I think they enjoy playing this. That's why I think it gets played so much. Got more of like a, a bluesy, almost at times Bo Diddley type feel to it. I love how you have this one tempo during the verse and then it kicks in at the chorus and picks up and kind of becomes a barn burner. Obviously, most times it's paired with Mellow Down Easy, which is actually recorded on this album, but it was a B-side. Right. Um, it's a It's a fun song, a good song. 
maybe lets up on the seriousness of the album a little bit in a good way, whereas Blackberry didn't. This does. If you would have told me this was like an old blues cover, I would have believed you. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, I think that's why it pairs so well with Mellow Down Easy, which is an old blues cover. They kind of, it's one of those combinations that I always like to hear one with the other. Maybe not to as serious of an extent, but like Ballad Wiser or, you know, Thorn's Progress into Thorn of My Pride. You know, right. those, like, there's certain things that need to be paired together at all times. And I always like to get Share the Ride with Mellow Down Easy. Yeah, I agree. I kind of wish Mellow Down Easy would have made the album and. I'll get into the song I'd like to see cut in a minute, but I wish it would have made the album. Well, I know you, so I know what song it is. <laughs> <laughs> I know you definitely haven't changed your opinion on that. No, one. uh-uh. But, uh, but the next song, I think, actually would have been more successful in, in, the, in the, taking the position of the lead single for the album, and that is Better When You're Not Alone. <laughs> Better when you're not alone. To me, it, it starts off very, very subdued and jangly, but it, it has this big sound to it. For a song that's relatively gentle and and simple, there's this big undertone to it. Like there's a lot of sound going on there, and there's a lot of elements in it that you maybe don't realize right away. But and lyrically, it's very hopeful, which I like too. The first appearance of young Rich Robinson playing a sitar. That's true. Would not be the last one though. What's the other song he plays a sitar on? aimless peacock of course okay just i'm just hey i'm just making sure you're you're in playing shape you know (laughs) this is easily one of the most underappreciated songs in the catalog both by the fans and underrepresented in the live setting such a positive message getting close to the end of a very dark album kind of gives you hope but i agree with you it's unique sounding i love that entrance um i like steve's drumming adds a lot to this it's a lot oh, of yeah. good, a lot of good percussion on it, and I love the breakdown. How the chorus gets slower and the tempo changes, and you have the very very pronounced backing vocals of Rich. I've always liked that. Um, I have always liked this song. I'll always defend it. I just think it's a, I think it's I think it's a great song. And I'll be honest with you. Just say you're sorry. I think they probably didn't put it on there because it would not fit lyrically. But this would almost fit paired with Better When You're Not Alone. I think. I agree. And this this song, I think, is also it's a disservice that it doesn't get played as much live because that ending bit where it kind of goes into like, you know, someone's playing a shaker and 
And there's some little guitar colorations over it. That lends itself to a massive jam potential. And I think they really could have done something with that a little bit more in the live setting. I guess maybe it's a little hard to pull off live because it is a lot of acoustic guitars happening in it. And that's very, very difficult in a live setting. A lot of people don't realize that to right. pull off a good acoustic sound. But but I, I think it's a great tune. And, and it is very helpful. And I'm going to say this. The positioning of this song is perfect with the song that comes next. And it's, it's this song is probably the reason why I like the next song the way I do and that the next song and final song being Evil Eye Let me explain what I mean. The lyrics to this are so hopeful. So you think this whole dark record, you come along and you hear this this very hopeful, tender sentiment. But in much the Black Crows, Robinson Brothers style, they can't leave a tender moment alone. So then you have a song like Evil Eye. Cynicism come in. Yeah. You can't have that hopefulness without a little bit of cynicism for that future. So it's hopeful for the future, but it also tags it with Evil Eye with a little bit of that cynicism. And that's why I like Evil Eye, the way it's positioned on this record. I will admit to you that in a live setting, when it's detached from that, don't enjoy it as much. I know you don't like it at all. It's one of my, <laughs> least, favorite, it's one of my least favorite Black Crow songs. Probably down there with uh, Diamond Ring, Go Tell the Congregation. And, and Woe Mule. I know it just make people mad with Woe Mule, but so be it. I was, I was told last weekend by somebody that listens to the podcast, they like that I give my honest opinion on things. So It is uh, true, but we're also trying to make friends here, David. So, you know, that's you right, to that's be a little right. more gentle about it, you know. Hmm? Well, I was, <laughs> I was talking about this with Nebuchadnezzar. He was telling me, and I agree with him, Chris had this lyric, Jesus can't save you, but it's nice to think he'd try or something like that. That he had this lyric and he had to find a way to fit it in somewhere. I just, in my opinion, it it sticks out like a sore thumb, as bad or more than Blackberry does on this album. 
there are a lot of people that love it, and that's fine. That's why they make chocolate and vanilla ice cream. You know, you can like one, I can like the other. Doesn't mean I'm right or you're wrong. Uh, it's all you know interpretation and how it makes you feel. But I just personally have never enjoyed it. And I, like I said, I totally get that. I really just enjoy this song. Like I said, in the context of the album itself, you know, detached from it live, I could take it or leave it a lot of times. I think it sounds disjointed from the album, too, because this was a track that first kind of made an appearance during the Tall session. So it's not even something that thematically came along at the same time. That's as right. It's been, been around for a few years. So it, that that to me is always why it seemed kind of kind of disjointed. But, you know, I've come to like it, like I said, just because of the way it juxtaposes itself with better when you're not alone. But that that brings us to the end of the album. I mean, it, to me, overall, it's it's 12 tracks that really are successful in doing what they set out to do, even though some of them may be a little misstep here or there. But, I mean, all these things we've talked about, this is the reason why this is my favorite Black Crows record. It's them at their artistic peak. Yeah. The vast majority of people listen to this podcast, their favorite album is Southern Harmony, Amorica, or Three Snakes. And uh, if Southern Harmony hadn't been the one that set the hook in my mouth, you know, there's a chance this could be my favorite one. But I don't think... Southern Harmony has skippable tracks. And no, that's true. If I'm listening like on streaming or on the city or whatever, I'm going to skip Blackberry and I'm going to skip Evil Eye. Whereas I don't do that with Southern Harmony. But I will tell you that some of the songs have a little more depth than some of the ones on Southern Harmony. But Southern Harmony is just a banger from top to bottom. I agree. I mean, that is their tour de force, really. That's their exile, their their moment, you know. But uh, not to mention, it's my favorite album cover. People bag on it. I think it's a gorgeous album cover, but it's very simplistic. <laughs> Just like Dark Side of the Moon is simplistic. You know, it's a simplistic album cover. I love it. It's great for getting signed. That's true. You know, it's like a blank canvas almost. I mean, you're not right. going to hear me knock it. I mean, I have this Three Snakes logo on my back tattooed. So, you know, uh, I've always been a fan of it. I kind of like the fact that it's a it's a 45 adapter, but the heads are turned into snakes, obviously. Three Snakes, I get it. But... To, it was cool when they released the album. The first vinyl release of Three Snakes was a 45 RPM box set of all the songs. I mean, I still uh, have it in my collection. and uh, But I think that's cool because the logo is a 45 adapter, so they released it on a series of 45s. That's kind of cool to me. And one of our listeners just sent that to me one time. Is that right? See, I'm I had one. At- and it was stored in my mother's house when I was, you know, in between uh, apartments at one time. And my mother had one of those damperid things near it, above it, and the thing leaked, and it leaked all over my Three Snakes box set. And I luckily found another one. Did you chastise so, your mother? Uh, my mother knew how much that broke my heart, but I can't be nasty to my mother. It's my mother, David. <laughs> I know there's there's a line, Ian. <laughs> so I just want to ask your opinion while we're talking about this. I mean, obviously, we will address this particular album in a, in a different episode. But do you think that had the band sessions been released at the time it was recorded, do you think that it would be, we would be talking about the big four albums and not the big three albums at this point? Do you think it would be, you think it would be put in the same regard as how could Southern it not? Harmony? How could yeah. it not? I mean, band is my third favorite. I mean, we've talked about it. Man's my third favorite album behind. I, I put band above Amorca. And I realized a few people just ran off the road when I said that. But I think Band is a lot like Three Snakes in. The lyrical content's pretty serious. And even though like the mastering on that probably isn't as best as it could be, 
there are a lot of layers to that. And I think, and honestly, I think it's, I think the band sessions are probably their most original album. Yeah. I think if the band sessions were included, the band sessions would have been the peak if they had still gone on to do by your side. And I don't have as much problems with by your side either as a lot of people do, but um, it definitely was a 180 from this album. I'll tell you. And I think had maybe, the band sessions been in there it would have saw if they had continued the same trajectory but just released the band sessions in between i think it would have softened the blow of by your side a little bit i agree i agree completely yeah i can't wait till we do band we're probably going to stretch these out from here on out pretty far out because we don't have that many albums left to do we don't want to not have those so maybe one or two a year but band i hope we can have a good guess for that one well, I had always envisioned us uh, splitting it into Tall and Band. Oh, know, yeah. Because yeah. it is the Lost Crows, but, you yeah. know. That, no, they're, to me, they're two separate albums. So, yeah, we will, uh, I don't know, we will be accepting applications for uh, potential guests on that one. So oh, send I'm, your stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking something other than a listener. Oh, yeah? Yeah. For both or just one? For Band. So maybe we'll take maybe something Maybe somebody had something to do with it. Oh, hopefully, you know, you never know. But uh, so this is great. I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I can't say enough good things about Three Snakes. And I'm glad we, for our historic first time in the same room episode, I'm glad we chose to revisit this album. I think it was a, it was a good idea and I had a lot of fun doing it. It's the remix, Ian. That's right. This is our remixed, remastered version. Why don't this, we uh, each pick a song to play out? Okay. I'm going to let you have the honors of going first. It's got to be Good Friday. Good pick. I'm going to find myself a very nice live version of One Mirror Too Many to play us out. So that's going to be Good Friday and One Mirror Too Many. Thank you all for joining us. We appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Stay tall, everybody.
You see? 